I mean, you know, anybody that hears that first cover ride, I, I don't know how you're not folks, you know? I start checking out places in the summer and looking for that good ground cover, flowers blooming then, grass, good brood habitat at that point. And you know that you're gonna have birds there if you're hearing them in the summer as well. They may not be right where you found them, but they're not gonna be far from them. There's still kind of a stigma on fire. People are scared of it. You know, you got other people who are telling them it's bad. Well, if you're a deer hunter, you don't wanna do that. Or, you know, we're burning up the turkeys. I mean, you just hear all kinds of stuff. I mean, it's $50 a year to be a member of the co-op. You can use the trailer or the tools whenever you want it. We ask, you know, that the people can help out on two burns besides theirs every year because that's the big thing, right? We need the manpower. There's one fella who's up in Cherokee County and he's been burning on his property for six or seven years now. And he's gone from maybe having a covey or hearing a bird or two. He thinks he might have 10 or 12 coveys on his property now. Where else can you go to not only find the information on how to train your dog, but the best deals on training equipment as well? Standing Stone Supply has everything you need to create that next versatile champion from DT system electronics down to even emergency med kits to take with you on your hunting trips. If you need some help with your training program, then their step-by-step -step online course might be a great fit for you, making it a convenient one-stop shop for the knowledge as well as the gear to take your training to the next level. Hit up standingstonesupply.com and promo code GDIY will save you 10%. Being an upland hunter in the south nowadays unfortunately means a lot of travel to try and find birds for my dogs. This means it's even more important that my map scouting is reliable to justify the effort. This is where Onyx comes in. I can honestly say that Onyx directly impacts the level of success I find on my trips. Whether it's the private versus public land boundaries, the expanding number of unique layers and features by state, or the 3D mapping capabilities, my initial step in planning my hunting trip starts with Onyx. To know where you're going, you have to first know where you stand. Check out Onyx Hunt Maps and use code G. GDIY20 at checkout to save 20%. All right, everybody, welcome back to another episode of GDIY. I'm joined this week by Drew Connor, who I recently linked up with and got a uh, quick little Bob White quail hunt in in South Carolina. Drew, how you doing today? Hey, I'm good, man. How about you? I'm living the dream as always. I understand that you were out this morning uh, with, with your boy chasing some bobs and everything. How did that go? Let's just go ahead and get the hunt recap now. That's right, man. It was a slow morning. Uh, it's about like when we went the other day, not a stitch of wind this morning, uh, just dry, cool. Uh, we didn't find anything this morning. Now we, uh, we left the bobs alone and got down in the thick stuff in the bottoms and came across a few woodcock, but we didn't do anything on the quail this morning. Mm. And were you, were you hunting South Carolina or North Carolina? Yeah, we were in South Carolina. Um, we, we headed east this morning, so we were down closer to the coast, a little more uh, like sandy region. Mm. Which, you know, uh, especially with how dry it's been down there, that can be kind of hit or miss because sandy regions typically dry out a little bit faster anyway. And so it's the dry conditions I can see where was everything pretty crunchy still there? Oh, yeah, big time. And that's the first time I've been at all this year. Um most of the time, you know, I try to get around in the summer, but I was closer to me and more west. So first time getting down there and it was very crunchy. All the grass was pretty thin. All the, you know, the weeds were, most of them were like knee height, you know. So they've, we've been dry and they were definitely dry down there. So I'm sure that hurt production as well. So yeah, it could have been just the sinning or, you know, it could have not been a lot of birds. I mean, yeah. 
Well, I know when we went the other day, it, like you said, it, it was super dry as well, but we got all that rain the day before. So it wasn't, you know, there was still some moisture around, but not enough to like really make up for how dry it's been for the previous months, really. Uh, but man, just, the, just the lack of wind. I mean, when you're talking about, I think it got up into the mid sixties, there was no wind. It was dry. Sending conditions just wasn't where we wanted it to be for any of the dogs. And, uh, but we still found some birds, right? Like we still got out there, they're out there. And, uh, it sounded like, did you say that you guys did get into some woodcock this morning? Yeah, we did. Um, we flushed maybe half a dozen we found and man, it was every one of them the dog was right on top of. So that kind of goes right into the no sinning or, you know, bad sinning conditions. I mean, a lot of times, you know, she's pointing them a ways off or you'll even see her hit a track if they've been moving and she'll track them for a little ways and then go on point. But every one was her slamming on point just right on top of them. So I imagine she was struggling with them. And for for the listeners, kind of put a pin on the map. Where where do you currently live? So I'm in the the Upper Piedmont. It's Edgemore, South Carolina. I'm about 45 minutes south of Charlotte, North Carolina. And so you kind of you, you you'll border hop. You kind of hunt both states. So oh, so instead of like this isn't really South Carolina or North Carolina. It's kind of just like Sweet Caroline all, all together, right? If you will. Uh, right. So how, how long have you been hunting that area? And what I'm getting at is I'm kind of curious at, at the conditions this year and how dry it's been. Like, can we contrast that against previous years? Have you been hunting long enough to kind of really put together a pattern and in your opinion, recognize the behaviors or bird numbers based on the dry or wet conditions year over year? Oh yeah. I've been hunting here my entire life. I mean, uh, I come from a family that Pretty much everyone in our family hunts. My dad was out in the woods as much as he could be. So he got us out at a real young age. And it's, I moved away for a couple of years when I was in the Marine Corps. And then once I moved back was when I got my dogs and are the ones that I have now. And so I've been hunting for a good while again here. And yes, yeah, it's, it's a struggle on the dry years. The woodcock are piled up in the wet areas. They're not spread out, you know. There's places I can go walk on a good wet year where I run into good numbers. And I went to one of those, uh, I guess, two Mondays ago for the North Carolina opener. And, I mean, I can't remember how many miles we walked, but it was all morning and into the afternoon. And I think we found four birds. So it's the same with the bobs. I mean, our numbers really aren't good enough to – tell like a big production difference in the dry and the wet years but it definitely makes them harder to find when it's dry like this it's a struggle with the dogs yeah i mean especially like it we you need moisture for the dogs to be able to smell them but then i mean even when you do get some rain like you know when when we linked up the other day the day before i came down it was a full day of rain from my understanding, but that also made for a really hot and humid day when we went hunting. So not only I, 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 you know, I'm not, it's interesting how like on high humidity days, some days the dogs seem to really be able to smell better. So than other days that, that have high humidity. So I haven't really kind of pieced together that puzzle, but when you mix in the no wind and high humidity, not only were we dealing with tough scenting, 
the the dogs even as the dogs that are in as good a shape and hunt as much as yours and mine that they weren't lasting very long either and uh you know they're kind of tapping out from what i saw you know we we put quinn down first for a quick run and even her you know she just she doesn't really have a uh she doesn't know how to pace herself yet and uh so you you saw you know after two hours she was pretty pretty much fried uh rachel's a little bit better but she's also a little bit older but it's just interesting like kind of comparing the dynamics and and uh you know i've been going to south carolina for a few years my mother-in-law and and my wife's family's down in there so i've been squeezing in some woodcock hunts over the years and quail i've been trying to hone in on them but this was really kind of the first trip that i actually found some wild bobs out there and i told you when when we linked up and and we went to your spot it, it wasn't very far down the road from what I've tried in the past. And, and there's a lot of good looking area down there, but I guess you just got to be in the right place at the right time when, you know, and that, that's really kind of what we have to do across the Southeast as a whole anymore, unfortunately. That's right. So kind of break down what you primarily chase. You know, today was Woodcock. We chased quail the other day. What do you prefer to do? Do you ever try and go after the elusive unicorn grouse in either state? You know, what's your preference uh, when it comes to actually going out there and chasing birds? Oh, yeah. So grouse is definitely my favorite, but I don't get to chase them a whole lot because I'm looking at I can get into some covers in about two and a half hours from my house, but you're looking at closer to three and a half, even close to four hours to get to where I like to hunt them. So just leaving the house at 3 a.m. and being gone all day for that one, you know. But I get up there as much as I can. Um, I've only been a couple times this year, but I found birds every time. I mean, you know how it is. You deal with the same thing down your way. You're not going to find many birds, and we put on some miles. It's rough hunting, Uh, a lot of elevation change. And, uh, but we've, we found some birds every time we've been, but that's, that's my favorite is chasing the grouse and then quails right behind it, I guess, because that's what I grew up doing. That was the first up bird I ever hunted was Bob White's down here. I got started with my family, you know, I was in the late eighties when I started hunting and they were tailing off pretty good then. I mean, the numbers were already falling out and we had still had a couple places around the house where we could find a covey or two and i mean you know anybody that hears that first covey rise i, I don't know how you're not hooked you know yeah i mean the the people you know you, you said your preference is rough grouse but you also appreciate the bob white opportunities in the covey flight and and that's that's really similar to my standpoint to where i prefer rough grouse but Anybody that says that 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 covey rise doesn't get them, doesn't get that heart rate going, they're just, they either haven't experienced it or they're just flat out lying or there's something wrong with them. They need to go get checked. That's right. That's right. But I mean, that, that grouse flush, it's, it's something else too. And I mean, it's the, the chess game of the grouse too. I mean, not that I've got the quail figured out by any means. I think as soon as you think you get them figured out, you get thrown for a loop and it's like man what in the world are they doing there or they're not there whatever but the grouse is you know it's and i learn something every time in the quail woods too but it's like i'm learning a lot every time i get up there in the mountains and you move a bird and man it's just something more exciting to it yeah well i mean to your point the the quail they're interesting because like they 
they are surprisingly unsurprising. Like, I, I don't even really know how to put into words when you're talking about Southern quail to where, like, especially if you know where coveys are. You know, that that's what's kind of neat about bobwhite quail to where you can really put in the miles and, and the time finding them. And as long as, you know, barring any kind of weather issues until the next hatch or somebody coming in and shooting them up or, or just kind of unfortunate circumstances, you can generally count on those coveys to remain in that that general area. They're not going to be in the same exact spot by any means, but they're going to be in that same area. But every time you go, even though that you know where that covey generally is, it's like they act completely different every time you go. They And, and I think it's a product of having so many birds and so many lookouts and sentries, if you will. It's uh, it's interesting to where like you and I went out and, and we, we came across birds flying pretty quick and you and I both were looking at each other like, why the heck were these birds flying? We weren't over there. The dog wasn't over there yet. Like they just, we're just walking down the path. I don't even think we loaded the guns yet. And we look right. up and there's four birds just kind of flying from right to left. And we're just like, all right, well, we know they're here. <laughs> it's that's just right. quail are we're just random like that. Yeah. yeah that's right. Yep. So, I mean, when when you've had so many years chasing these and you've seen the populations kind of decline, generally when you go out looking for these Southern Bobs, what are you looking for? Because as you said, coveys disappear. It kind of forces you to have to get out there and explore new areas to find new coveys. And let's face it, that's part of the fun as well. Talk, Kind of talk to me and, and tell the listeners when you're out there looking for new coveys on new ground, what are you looking for for Bobs? All right, so I mean, I I'll start with the scouting from a map, you know, on the phone. I start. I'm ninety nine percent public land, you know, so I'm looking at places that anybody else can hunt. I start looking at spots, you know, you're looking for somewhere that's been cut and is at least open enough to get sunlight to the ground. But I like to see, you know, like some. I guess you could call it supporting habitat around. It doesn't have to be on the public land, but I'd like to see a nice clear cut or some really thin pines, good habitat close to what I'm planning on hunting. That way there's a big block of habitat there. I mean, you know, you can find you some perfect looking habitat and out in the middle of the national forest. And if it's all closed canopy forest around there you may or may not find birds i mean there's there's not a good chance there's just a random cubby in a 20 acre cut even though you know they could live there if it was in prime habitat so that's where i start and then man like, like we talked about i start in the summer it takes a lot of work around here at least on my part for me to find birds consistently so i start checking out places in the summer and looking for that good ground cover. I'm looking for stuff, flowers blooming in, grass, places that, you know, good brood habitat at that point. And you know that you're going to have birds there if you're hearing them in the summer as well. They may not be right where you found them because things are going to change, right? The leaves are going to fall off all the sweet gums that they're living in. And the cover changes from the summer to the fall, but they're not going to be far from there. So, I mean, that's, that's what I start with. And then getting into fall, I like listening for cubbies. That's going to give you a good idea there. I mean, <laughs> they're going to be some 
close. They kind of give themselves away a lot of the time. <laughs> if you're out there listening for them, for sure. That's right. Yeah. Well, real quick on the map scouting, you you raise up a couple interesting uh, parts on that to where what you're talking about, like, if you find a nice little 20 acre patch, if you will, out in the middle of the, the, the national forest or really any public land doesn't have to be national forest. And you're looking at the map and it, and it's closed canopy and you see this Island out there, you know, the, the reason why it's pro that you're either going to have some like remnant holdovers from, you know, they just kind of got stuck there over time and, and or because they're not going to come from an outside spot to go to that island. They don't know that island is there. And so they're not going to open themselves up or the, the entire covey up to going through all that closed canopy forest in the open where they can be seen by, you know, whatever predators or get taken out by whatever uh, hawks, especially like, you know, it. so like when you're looking at that, that's a very good topic to where if you see this island it could be the best looking habitat out there but if the birds aren't there then they're not going to commute in and and move in and that's more or less kind of to sum up the issue down here in the southeast that's really what we're talking about like because you know you can take my property i'm trying to put the habitat on the ground we have everything that a quail could want here but because there's no like contiguous or route for them to get here from you know the the closest property with more cover that they're not really moving in they're not going to fly a mile looking for cover if you will i know there's some species that can do that but bob white just that that's not it so if you don't have a way to connect ground and connect habitat you're you're kind of just banging your head against the wall kind of that's right and i mean you know i i like to nerd out on all these transmitter studies that they're doing on them and reading about them and listening to that kind of stuff. And, you know, they have a couple of birds here and there that just strike out in the spring and go five or eight miles or, you know, put on a good bit of ground to find a new place. But I mean, you know, it's going to take more than just that one bird. And like you say, you can drive down the road. and I mean, there's the habitat's gone. It's, mowed fields you know just mature closed canopy forest so you got to be looking for that area that it's it's broader than just the area you want to hunt that's going to hold birds i mean you just you just got to think it's like okay well i'm staring at some great habitat everything that they say everything i read everything i've listened to on a podcast or a video like this this looks picture perfect well, you also have to ask, like, well, where's the nearest, where's the next spot? How close are we talking about? And then that can kind of clue you in. And, and like you said, they may still be there, but they, they're they left over from before that closed canopy forest kind of just surrounded them and, and really just kind of grounded them into that one location. And then I would say if there's only one covey in that little 20-acre plot, that's where – us as hunters, we have to kind of recognize that and and those self-imposed restrictions we talk about on the podcast, like go out there, hunt, you know, maybe shoot one bird out of the covey and then even get some dog work, but just don't, don't shoot up the entire covey because if you take that one covey down, I forget the exact size of birds, you know, they, they kind of have the general talking point to where if a covey is, you know, X 
size. There's, I think it's like five or six birds. They can't survive a, a winter. Uh, you know, just keep it in mind that you're out there and while you found the covey, you can do some damage to where that entire covey is gone the next year just because you overhunted it. That's right. Yeah, it, it kind of, you know, it depends on who you listen to. It's, they say from five to eight is what I hear. Anywhere around there, just depending on which biologist you're listening to. Or, so, I mean. And it's general to, anyway. I mean, you yeah, know, there, yeah, there's right. there's missing context and nuance. I mean, you know, not all coveys in every re, uh, area, not all the habitat is created equal. So, you know, this uh, a covey in a certain type of habitat might get away with five, whereas, you know, a covey in another region might might need eight or ten but it's a general rule of thumb to to really use and i know a lot of other hunters that i speak to if they flush a covey of five or six they don't even take a shot at them absolutely and you know that that covey out there on the island by itself it's going it's already struggling so that's the same thing with us you know we if we start flushing them and there's less than about eight get up we don't shoot either and then we try to you know, if we get into a covey, we'll kill two birds and then we'll move on and try to find another one. I mean, somebody else is going to inevitably find that covey this winter. So that's that's just what we try to do. And just like you were talking about, I mean, it's more of us need to start moving to that. I mean, like I've heard you say before, they sell chicken at the grocery store, right? Yeah. So, I mean... It, it, it's it's one of those... It's it's a It's a fine line because you know when you kind of first get into this world and you start trying to learn you don't know what you don't know and i say that almost every freaking episode but it but it is true to where you come in here and in the one hand we're taught that this is science based management that limits and seasons are decided on out of science so you can trust and that's where hunters can say like hunting doesn't have a direct impact on overall population levels right so there there's an element of truth to that to where i believe that us going out there and taking a few birds that's that's not really like that big of a difference to say a hawk or a or a coon or or fox or whatever takes one or two like there's gonna be you know let's face it quail are put on this earth to die unfortunately like either at our hands or something else's hands but but also again that's missing context to where if you do go hunt that island you can't really lean on hunters don't have an impact on wild bird populations without looking at the bigger picture and and so you know we don't we didn't get on here to preach to everybody but like this is an element in the south to where you have people that have been hunting these birds, kind of like yourself, their entire lives. And the birds are dwindling, but they still have that itch. They still have that passion. They go out, they find birds, and then they'll kick up the covey, and then they'll hunt singles of that covey all day long. And they'll say things like, well, you know, it's not every day you come across a covey. You have to take advantage of that. I get it. I understand it. I, I wish that that was kind of true. But if you want that covey to survive and be there next year and leave seed for maybe other coveys coming out of that one and spreading and being prolific, you guys, you, you got to kind of take some of that responsibility on your own shoulders when you kind of think about this. Absolutely. And this is something that like when you reached out to me 
months ago. I mean, this was before season and we kind of swapped some messages here and there. It kind of appealed to me because it, it wasn't really like, you know, I, I get feedback or messages from all kinds of people, right? And asking for advice or just throwing in two cents here or what have you. And you literally was just like, hey, I hunt, I'm in the Southeast, I volunteer with Quail Forever, and I'm the president of a prescribed fire co-op. I'm just sitting there like, well, that that kind of intrigued me because it, it's most people will kind of give me their hunting resume, if you will. And you're just like, hey, I'm down here trying to fight the good fight. We don't have many birds. And that's why I really wanted to talk to you, especially this, this prescribed fire co-op. I want to know more about that. Like, what is it? How did you get involved? And, and what are you guys like currently hoping to get out of that? So the name of it's the Broad River Prescribed Fire Co-op. And we're still kind of like in the getting it rolling stages, I guess you would call us. Uh, we're, we've got a couple of members who are dedicated to it. And we still talk a good bit. And um, we've got four or five people who are burning on their property already a good bit and we seem to have a lot of interest in the area you know there's just there's still kind of a stigma on fire people are scared of it you know you got other people who are telling them it's bad well if you're a deer hunter you don't want to do that or you know we're burning up the turkeys i mean you just hear all kind of stuff but so our you know my main goal was to put more habitat on the ground in our area there's uh, the Piedmont Prescribed Fire Co-op there in the lower Piedmont, a few counties down from us. They actually started first with the help of Quail Forever, and I started seeing what they were doing. They've got a Facebook page, and I reached out to the president, Cole Shealy, and uh, was speaking with him a little bit. And I said, well, man, I'd like to get this going in my area, you know, and he said, well, talk to Jake McLean's the well, for every biologist down there, I spoke with him and then he put me in touch with the biologist here at the time, which uh, she's moved on and we have a new biologist now. But our uh, my main goal and most of the members as well is to get more habitat on the ground in our in these four counties, Lancaster, Chester, York and Cherokee counties in South Carolina. And probably I would say 90 percent of the people who have reached out and are interested are quail hunters. I mean, because that's what it is. You know, I mean, you hear all kind of stuff, but it's the habitat. If you look in the areas that they're really doing the habitat work, the birds are there. again, And they weren't there. I mean, there's some places here in South Carolina, they haven't been working on this habitat extensively, but for eight years now. And the numbers were the same there as they were everywhere else. And they're doing, I mean, they're still not doing great because there's just not enough habitat still, you know, there's, it's not broad enough yet, but they're doing a lot better than they were. So that's what we're trying to do. We're just trying to get this thing rolling, get the word out about it and just get as many members as we can. You know, we need to understand that there's not a lot of people around here that own or can't afford 1500, 2000 acres. But if I can do it on my property, my neighbor over can start managing his and we can get the guy two properties down. I mean, if we can start spreading this out, we can make a big difference, you know? Yeah. Oh, absolutely, man. You're you're preaching to the choir here. I mean, here on my own property, just my me doing the native grasses, doing the equip program and and doing the burn. I just did my fall burn last week before coming down to South Carolina. It's 
it, it naturally invokes questions with the neighbors because to your point, like fire used to be more commonly accepted, especially this kind of changes on which regions you're in. Like where I live, it's the plant nursery capital of the world. So you actually like, it's a, it's a farming community while it's plant nurseries, you have a bunch of farmers. So they're familiar with the, with the fire, but they kind of more or less didn't understand the value of the fire when it came to wildlife uh, habitat. And so just by me doing this over the years, Certain neighbors have been asking questions. They're seeing the results to where they're not even having to worry about deer getting into their vegetable gardens anymore because there's so much food out there for them to eat and they don't have to come up near the houses, right? Like when neighbors and people in the area start seeing just, I mean, it can be as subtle changes as that right there to where they no longer have to put up fencing to keep their deer out of their vegetable garden. It may, may seem like a small step, but that it results in them asking questions. Why? How do I get involved? How do I do that? And then, you know, my neighbor directly next to me, they've started allowing their habitat to come up. Their their fence lines are coming back up. You know, their their field is full of native grasses instead of instead of cutting it. Now our issue is we're in Tennessee and and fescue is the the enemy to everybody. Not all grass is created equal, but uh, th- they see the time and effort that it goes into just trying to bring back what is supposed to be here. And then at the very least, it keeps them engaged and interested and bought into even just not letting the invasives and the privet and the Bradford pears take over even more space, right? Like every little small step in the community is a, is a net win in my opinion now. That's right. So when you do the prescribed burn, kind of tell me how that works. It sounds like it's in conjunction with Quell Forever, or at least the biologist. Is it kind of like they just have a list of available properties to go burn and you guys are there to help volunteer with your time or are y'all manning the entire burn yourself? Kind of just break down the entire process of, of what it is that you guys do. Are you assisting or leading? Oh, yeah. So we're leading. It's, it's essentially just a group of landowners that are interested in implementing prescribed fire on their land. So we get a list together, you know, who wants to burn. And we've got our own tools. We were able to secure a grant from the Forest Service and they got us some tools. And uh, we're still looking for a trailer right now. You know, enclosed trailers aren't cheap. So, um, but I mean, it's $50 a year to be a member of the co-op. And you can use the trailer or the tools whenever you want it. Um, we just, we ask, you know, that the people can help out on two burns besides theirs every year, because that's the big thing, right? We need the manpower. So it's just a group of guys that we're sharing each other, other's information. Uh, pretty much everybody's got their own tools too. So that helps out. And we're, we're there, we're doing it all on our own. Uh, Quell Forever pretty much just helped us get the thing rolling. Uh, the the Forest Service, they provide us with a lot of help as well. Um, DNR, they'll come out and speak at the meetings, and uh, some of them are pretty active in helping out, but we, we do it all on our own. We have to have a prescribed fire manager, like a certified prescribed fire manager at every fire to sign off on it, but stuff like fire lines, the, the plan for the fire, the burn plan, all that stuff, that's the landowner's responsibility. So the landowner's responsible for getting everything ready up to the day of the fire. 
And as long as we got good weather that morning, we get as many people to come as we can and we just get rolling. That's awesome. I mean, again, someone that just did their fall burnout here, I mean, the agency here in Tennessee, they kind of have their their fire team. It's like, you know, the, the police have their SWAT team. Our agency here has like their fire team and they were out here helping us. And I had a buddy come down and, and, and he helped uh, my buddy Tim. But as you know, when you start doing some of these really big fires and to do it properly and safely, uh, you, sometimes you need a lot of hands. Uh, you know, when it's one thing to do like a little small five acre, you know, evenly just square burn. But sometimes, man, it's just like my property is pretty diverse into where we're doing some pasture here. And of course, I have everything gridded off because I'm training my dogs out here. So it's a nice, even little square patch here. But then we're burning into the woods over here right? Like we need a nice slow creep and then you got the neighbors and all that stuff. Like there's a lot that goes into it and anybody that's never really volunteered or checked out a burn, they may think that it's just one of those like, oh, you know, cut a couple lines in the dirt and then light a match. Uh, There's more to, I mean, overall, like it is kind of that simple, but when it comes down to it and and putting it into practice and doing it safely, uh, there's a little bit more elements to that, you know, it's, it, you can have the b- best plan, but for instance, on my property, we didn't have any issues on mine, thankfully, but we did have one old hollow tree catch fire. And if we, w- if we weren't there to monitor it, then it was large enough when it fell, it could have jumped the the border. It could have, it could have jumped the street into the neighbor's property. And so we're there with the chainsaw. We knocked it down, put it out, no big deal. But it's stuff like that to where obviously fire is fire. Hopefully I don't have to explain to everybody like why, what damage fire can do, but it is one of those like, yes, there is a certification process. And, and that's why I find it interesting that you guys have some actual co-ops. I'm not really aware of something like that here in Tennessee. And that's something that really kind of piqued my interest with what you're doing. Oh yeah. And that's, uh, there, we have South Carolina has a certified prescribed fire managers course. And, uh, that's, we have to have one at every fire and that's part of what covers us, you know, in case something were to happen. But that's one of the big things is that just being careful. I mean, Every, you're going to catch a time sometimes you get there in the morning and everybody's ready to roll and it's just like you like that test fire and it's like man we can't do this today you know it's it's not what the weatherman said by any means yeah wind is swirling or whatever oh yeah and then on the other hand that's a big hold up for a lot of people you know a lot of people are really scared of fire i mean you got a lot of smaller properties that like you said they've got neighbors right beside them big nice hardwoods or a big field or you know, proper houses and stuff. I mean, it's you, you hear so many horror stories that it's really scared a lot of people away from using fire. And I mean, as long as you're responsible with it, it's nothing to be scared of at all. Right. I'm curious to hear the response, like with so many members coming in and they have vested interests, they're burning their own properties, they're helping burn your properties. Maybe y'all are getting involved on the public land as well. 
after doing this and, and doing numerous burns, have you heard some actual like personal examples or testimonies of we b started burning this property and then guess what magically started showing up? We started getting some birds back on this property over here, or maybe there was a, a, a holdover like small covey that all of a sudden turns into a nice like 20, 30 bird covey, something like that. Have you kind of seen improvements on the landscape by doing this? Oh yeah. I mean, we've got a, there's one fella who's up in Cherokee County and he's been burning on his property for, man, I think six or seven years now. And he's, he's gone from hearing like a quail or a couple of quail to he's getting some pretty good numbers. And now, I mean, it's a large property, so it's the supports there now that he's working on his habitat. But I mean, it's, hundred percent proof right mm -hmm. i mean you went from maybe having a covey or hearing a bird or two during the summer to i mean i he he thinks he might have 10 or 12 coveys on his property now yeah so i mean that's it, it doesn't take that long at all for the difference to be made i mean you have people that man i hadn't seen a meadow lark in 20 years around here here you know so it's it doesn't take long at all once you get the ball rolling on your property the habitat, I mean, once it's there, it's the difference is, shows up fairly quickly. Yeah. And then it's just a matter of just keeping it on rotation. Maybe you're doing a mosaic, you know, on your property. You split it down. It's like, okay, we're going to do this section every other year, every three years or, or something like that, depending on your goals. Because let's face it, the quail, it, it's kind of a misunderstanding from a lot of people because quail kind of get lumped into the grassland uh, discussion, right? And so, like, you know, when you're kind of in the grassland or prairie, you know, a lot of people associate that with bobwhite quail. And while obviously they're adjacent to that, they're a, they're a player in that, that kind of system they're really a shrubland obligate. So you need some kind of woody structure. And so if you go out there and you burn your property or you burn the same thing every year, you, it's going to bring back your forbs, you know, some grass. It's going to be real green. You're going to get some, some flowers and stuff, but you're never letting that shrubby cover develop. You're not, you're, you know, you're not, you're not getting the thickets that you need, the plum thickets or whatever that, that you're trying to bring in. So you do have to kind of more or less rotate it to where if you burn the entire property every single year, you're never going to get that. But if you start staggering it and you do it in thirds or even just halves and you do it on like a three-year rotation, while one doesn't have the woody structure, because you just burned it, the other side of the property does, and then vice versa when you kind of swap that fire thing. And once you kind of start hunting and you see the results of, I flush birds here. Why? Well, there's woody structure here. Why is there woody structure here? Oh, well, there's not really a whole lot of black or fire marks on the trees here. It's been a few years since this burned. Then you go into the area that has a bunch of burn marks that was just recently burned, and maybe that woody structure died off, guess what? You don't see the birds there. And so, you know, it's just kind of piecing together that little pattern and, and making it make sense to you. And then when you go talking to other people or trying to help other people, it, it starts making a little bit more sense with how you break it down for them. That's right. You know, like they say you want to get that checkerboard effect going on. I mean, the more you can do with that, I think the better. Yeah, exactly. And so, I mean, when you're out hunting these birds and and in the short time that I've known you from afar, we've met once in person, you know, it seems like you get after it a lot. 
especially with your boy and you got that little setter pup, it seems like that you, you're you an actual hardcore upland hunter, which, you know, people do what, what they can. You know, if, if we only have weekends available to us, get out there and hunt. But it sounds like you're getting out there every chance you can. And uh, so I'm just kind of curious – what, what type of stuff are you typically finding the actual birds in? You know, you talked map scouting and, and trying to find that place from afar, but then when you put boots on the ground, are you kind of zeroing in on specific types of plant or, or cover? What Kind of walk me through what you're looking for when you actually get out there with boots on the ground. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, man, I just had this conversation with my son this morning. He was with me, and uh, we had to get started early. Cause we had to get back here and uh, I told him, you know, it wasn't too long after daylight when we started walking. And I, I said, you know, we're going to go up here and hit this. There was some pretty thin looking grass. And uh, I said, you know, it, I didn't think the birds had, if they had moved off the roost, they weren't too far. So early in the morning like that, I mean, you know, back when I started us, my granddad and them, they, they weren't going hunting that early. I mean, they were, they were sitting around drinking coffee and here I am 10 years old, man, I'm dying to go. You know, <laughs> but they, they knew better, but I mean, you know, you got to take what you get. So first thing in the morning like that, if I, if I'm going that early, I'm walking grass. I'm trying to find a place that they've either roosted in or they're working from that roost to where they're going to feed it. And when you say grass, are you talking bunch grass? Oh yeah. 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 I, I stay away from any fescue or anything yeah. like that. Yeah, you know, your little blue stem or broom sedge blue stem, something like that that's a little more open. I, I find them roosted in there a lot, somewhere where it seems like they can get out of there very easily. So uh, after that, I'm working towards somewhere with some food, looking for places. If I was there in the summer, I remember that there were flowering plants um, just an area with Forbes, somewhere where they can feed and find some good food. And, you know, mid-morning, getting on up in the late morning, for pretty much the rest of the day until maybe in the evening, if it's going to be real cold, sometimes I'll find them back where they're going to feed again. But up in the day, I'm looking for plum thickets, uh, trees that have blown over, by that grass and forbs somewhere thick where they they're laying up either in the shade if it's warmer or they can get in some of that filtered sun if it's cold but somewhere up in the day i'm looking for that escape cover or loafing cover you know whatever you want to call it but some good cover that they're going to be in up in the day like that yeah absolutely and and of course like you said it it, to me, I, I have an easier time recognizing quail cover or specific plant species, I should say, not quail cover, but identifying the sources when when it's actually alive and not dormant. So like when everything's greened up, there's flowers, I have a lot better success at identifying those sources than right now in the fall. Everything kind of looks the same. Everything's brown and dead and stuff like that. If you start looking close enough and you pick it apart, not not exactly the easiest thing to do when you're actually moving and, and actually hunting and covering ground. But if you do stop and you look around, you can still see certain things. You can find the beggar's lice. You can you can find the partridge pea. You know, we found some swamp rose and that still had had some soft mass coming out of it uh, the other day. And so it's like just kind of recognizing that. And, and then it goes into 
really what we preach about every species, whether you're hunting rough grouse or sharp tail grouse or quail in the West or here, when you get up the birds, don't just immediately leave. Actually take a minute to stop and look around. Hopefully you got a bird to look for or send a dog on, but let's say you miss and they're long gone. Don't go chasing them immediately. It's not even to your benefit to go after them immediately. You want them to settle down. They're wind washed. You want them to settle down, get comfortable, let that scent cone build back up and and get your dog's nose where it needs to be, right? Get their head back right take a second to kind of scan around. If you have the the plant ID app, maybe start scanning a few things. Start recognizing and piecing together that puzzle uh, because it's, it's hard when you fly 10 birds not to immediately go chasing after them. It, it is hard to do that. <laughs> have you ever shot a bird that just keeps on flying and you're standing there saying, I swear I hit that bird? Well, good news. Maybe... It might not be you, but rather your shotgun. Go check out UplandGunCompany.com and construct the perfect shotgun that is not only built to your exact physical specifications, but your preferred looks as well. To some people, a shotgun not only has to perform, but look good while doing it also. Upland Gun Company has made this process super convenient and surprisingly affordable when you consider all of the completely customizable features. Get your shotgun order submitted today so you're standing there with your dog saying fetch rather than standing there still saying, I couldn't have missed that bird. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Tell me, continue on like your strategy on hunting. You know, again, I, I had that one quick walk with you. That's not really enough to piece piece the pie together with you. But, you know, what else are you, you doing or looking for? Do you have a strategy? What about elevation? You talked about the timing of the day. You go super early, but obviously there's a benefit to maybe waiting for that dew to cook off and, and, and stuff like that. What are some of the other things that you kind of contribute when, when you're making decisions on how to go hunt? Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, if it's up to if it's my choice, I'm waiting a little while in the morning. You know, like I talked about when I was a kid, you know, I'm still chomping at the bit. I mean, I get up early every day, so the dogs are up. It's like, man, I'm ready to go. But it doesn't pay off a lot of times to go first thing in the morning like that. The birds aren't moving yet. Like you say, the dew's still on the ground. The sun's not up or there's still frost. So I do like to wait until a couple hours after daylight to get after them like that. And like the elevation, man, I, you know, I, we were talking about this the other day. You, you think you figure something out and then the, the other, next time you go out, it's, it's wrong. Oh, <laughs> I took my wife and there's a little bowl and it's still got frost in it. And we're walking by there and I looked down and it, it looked like it was from the night before where the birds were roosted there. And I'm like, man, this looks like the coldest place on this whole hillside. You know, the sun hadn't even hit it yet. Like, why did they pick here to roost? But I don't know, you know, so it's just one of those things. But, yeah, I, and then um, as far as, you know, I, I 
the further you get into the year, the weirder places you're going to find them in. They're, they're getting pushed around. I mean, we're getting, which is good. You know, I love seeing people out there that are hunting, new hunters, older hunters that are back at it, or, you know, people that are still just after it. But we need that. But the more people who are pushing these birds around, they don't have a, a lot of habitat. They're, they're going to end up in some weird places by the end of the year. Yeah, especially with, uh, let's, I mean, I, I've told everybody, like, you you run into hunters. If you go hunt public land, you're going to run into other hunters, uh, at least on occasion. I can honestly say I have run into other hunters more so the times that I hunt in South Carolina than any other state in the Southeast. I don't know what it is. Oh, yeah. you, you guys have a very healthy, it seems like, rabbit hunting community there. Definitely. And so yeah. when when you go out on these little areas, again, what's good for the bird is good for the herd. If it benefits quail, it's going to benefit all other wildlife, especially rabbits. So rabbit hunters and quail hunters are very often hunting the same cover. And to your point, those beagles and those rabbit hunters start pushing around quail. And then I also know rabbit hunters aren't above shooting the 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 occasional quail themselves either so you know when you start talking about pressure you know it's i i know a lot of people will start saying oh well there's that not that many upland hunters left anymore no but there's still other people out there doing it there's still rabbit hunters squirrel hunters deer hunters whatever and so you know you got to factor in that it's like yeah that pressure may not be coming from just quail hunters and from my personal experience it seems like y'all have a very healthy rabbit uh hunting population and community in that state oh yeah i mean we heard them the other day right and then uh you know the birds don't care i mean they don't it's pressure to them they don't know that well that, that dog you know nobody shot at me then all they know is they just got flushed by a dog and man somebody's after me again right so it's it just adds to it and like you say, I mean, I'll run into somebody every now and again out there, but you don't run into a lot of quail hunters anymore. And you do run in, I run into more rabbit hunters than anything. And I have plenty of them ask me, like, you know, they'll see my one guy stop the other day. I had the collar on the hood. I just cut it on. You know, it was paired and the dog wasn't out. And they stopped and backed up and said, you rabbit hunting? And I said, no, nah, I'm, I'm going bird hunting, you know. And he said, man, still quail around here? I'm like, yeah, there's a couple, you know, so uh, it's, 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 it's kind of a dying thing on one hand. And then the other hand, you see people getting back into it and it's, it's a, there's a mixed feeling among the quail hunters that I talk to. Some of them will tell you, you know, keep your mouth shut and, you know, act like they're all gone. But uh, to me, that's the wrong thing to do. We need more hunters. We need more people calling DNR like, Hey man, we need better management for these birds. We need more people involved with Quail Forever, doing things on their property. I mean, the more habitat we can make, the better this is going to get. Absolutely. And and I think a lot of people, you know, when you get into conversations of people talking about getting more hunters or or maybe we don't need more hunters there there's also an aspect that people need to realize that the bigger picture is us as hunters and outdoorsmen, we are outnumbered by the, you can call them the the non-consumptive users in the outdoor space. Whatever you want to call them, we are, we are easily outnumbered. So whether we are, our goal is to actually bring in new hunters or not, we still have to 
tell our stories a little bit better. We have to inform the outsiders a little bit more to where they understand if they're not even going to participate, they at least understand or have some kind of foundation or basic knowledge of how all of this works because they're the ones voting. They're the ones that these anti-hunting organizations are appealing to via emotion and not really any accurate science-based information. And so if those groups are reaching them before us because other people in our hunting community are too scared or too reluctant or selfish, whatever reason that they have that they don't really want to bring new people into the space— if we don't reach them first, then the then the anti-organizations are going to reach them. And we are seeing that especially down here in the southeast. And, and I know that there are certain areas and regions that are really heavy and, and, and a little bit better off with bird populations. So they may not understand this or relate to this. But down here in the south, we are struggling. And we aren't just struggling on rough grouse. We aren't just struggling on bobwhite quail. We're struggling on everything. I mean, it's just, it's kind of hard to convey to the people that, that never see it because let's face it, the South hasn't exactly been a destination upland hunt for quite a no. while. So it's not like anybody's coming down here and really seeing it. And so like when we start talking about like how to get other people involved, I'm not necessarily talking about I, – I don't want other people hunting the spots I want to hunt either. You know, I'm just sure. as selfish as the other hunter as well. Yeah. But I recognize yeah. that we need their support. We need their support more so and arguably more so than their money and their donations, right? Like money makes the world spin around. But if we're not actually educating and getting our voices heard in, in outside the hunting community – the, the end result is the same. It doesn't matter. We can add as many hunters as we want. If we're not accessing the non-hunters out there, it's 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 a lost cause in the, in the long run anyway. That's right. And I mean, like you said, it's, it's not just the grouse and the quail. It's everything. I just got an email from DNR this week. They took another, I think it's 15 days off our turkey season and went from three turkeys to two. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's hurting across the board. Yeah. And it's so hard to convey that to other people because even even within the hunting community, you have so many specialists. We have, we're obviously bird hunters and upland hunters, but also how many times have you been having this conversation with the deer hunters, right? And they just don't un understand or they refuse to accept the fact that like, hey – we need to cut trees. We need more early successional habitat. We we need thicker stuff. But for one, whatever reason, you can fill in the blank, they're reluctant to do it. And let's face it, deer hunting makes the hunting community spin. They just do. Oh. They bring in the bulk of the money. And when people think of hunting, I think uh, I would venture to guess that they're going to think of deer hunting more so than anything else. And so when they're the face of the community and they're out there preaching food plots instead of native cover and, and cutting trees, you know, it, it, we all have to do a better job of advocating this stuff. And so, like, I kind of – I get turned off when somebody's like, oh, we don't need any more hunters. It's like, okay, but we still have to educate the people. You can't just go stick your hand, head in the sand and be like, I want – these last three coveys of quail on this national forest to remain mine. Well, they're going to go away 
regardless. Right. You're just holding on for like the last breath of air, if you will. Well, back to the, you know, the prescribed fire co-op, that's one of my goals there too. I mean, look at the deer we jumped quail hunting the other day. I mean, yeah. we, we were getting deer. My son and I saw a really nice buck um, this morning. We jumped it up. It's sitting right in the middle of a plum thicket. I mean, there wasn't a tree in uh, maybe a thousand yards from us this morning, you know? So that's part of my thing too. You know, I, when I first started the co-op, I was just reaching out to anybody I could think of. If I talked to somebody that I'd know and they'd be like, oh man, you need to call this guy. He's got some land. He might be willing to. And they'd be like, well, you know, I pretty much just deer hunt. I don't think I have any need for fire on my land. And then, you know, I try to tell them, well, it, it really will help you. I understand everyone thinks you need to plant food plots and I'm not bashing food plots. If that's your thing, go ahead. But I mean, you start looking into some of these native plants, they got, there's native plants that have as much protein as beans. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, the fire, good early successional habitat is going to feed a deer through the year as well. Yeah. And I, I'm, I'm, I like looking at a good stand of hardwoods as much as anybody, but I mean, what is there to eat in there? Yeah. How long are the acorns on the ground? And the broads, scheme of things not a long time and if it's a closed canopy 80 year old oak flat you know there, there's nothing in there for them to eat the rest of the year yeah i mean absolutely i mean if you go through walking through an old growth forest yes you can see a lot further but those deer can also see a lot further too not only are they oh, yeah. they're even even more insecure and yep. because they can see and hear everything and everything can see and hear them. So if you that's why you don't bump a whole lot just walking through an old growth forest. Now you will if you kind of crest a hill and the wind is in the, in your favor. Like you can, don't get me wrong. But how many times to come back to your previous point when you upland hunt and you're and you're working the cover do we kick up deer? I mean, heck, there there was that one that we kicked up. It was like two or three deer in that one little spot, and that one got trapped in between me and the dog, and we just stared at each other for like a minute or Dude. two. And you're just like, yeah. "What? What's wrong with this deer?" And I'm like, it, "It just doesn't know where to go." Yeah. But that happens all the time to where I have literally been in like arm's length of white-tailed deer by walking through quail cover or grouse cover or whatever. And, and it's like other people don't ever come across that because they're, they're not busting cover. You know, the typical deer hunter. Yeah. The the typical deer hunter is going to go sit in that deer stand and not see anything outside of that view all day long. All they're going to see is what they walked in and walked out on. And uh, especially if you start talking about States where baiting deer is legal. And I know South Carolina, they have baiting deer and not to get on that high horse. Like, Hey, if you want to bait your deer and it's, if it's safe, legal and fun, have at it. But recognize that wherever you drop that bag of corn, that's all you see. Okay. And, And so you can't base whether or not you have healthy habitat in the area because you happen to see a bunch of deer and good quality deer over a corn pile. 
because you don't know where those deer are necessarily coming from. You're just hunting a corn pile and you're bringing them to you, right? You're not going to them. And so like, I don't want everybody to take us on the soapbox as like bashing what they prefer to do, but just recognize that the people that are out there seeing the results of mismanagement or no management at all, it's not the deer hunters. It's, it's the small game hunters. And, you know, it, to me, I, it, it doesn't make any sense that like what we can do for small game benefits the big game. But for some reason, they just don't see or hear that message enough. And then it's the once they are educated, they can't they can't claim ignorance anymore. They're still fighting you tooth and nail saying like, oh, no, I've hunted grandpappy's deer stand in that tree for 80 years. But then in the next breath, they're going to complain that they don't see as many deer as they once did. Like it just it, it doesn't line up logically for me. Oh, yeah. And I mean, it goes back to the same thing with the quail, too. You know, you talk to somebody and they're they just they swear up and down. I mean, the, my land has not changed in 50 years, but the quail are gone because of the fire ants and the coyotes and, and this turkeys. And that. But, yeah. Oh, yeah. But I mean, you look around and. It, it has changed. I mean, and not for the better. You know, the, the forest is growing and it's closing in. The fence lines are gone. Like you said, like y'all, I mean, there's fescue everywhere. Quail can't make a living in a fescue field. I mean, it just can't do it. Yeah. Well, and it's it it it's unfortunate that we're having turkeys declining like they are all across the southeast it's unfortunate but i hope that it's it's a warning to the deer and turkey hunters that maybe don't come across and and they haven't heard the alarms that we've been setting off for quail and rabbit and stuff i'm hoping that if we get anything out of the turkeys declining it's that it finally gets through to them that maybe they start paying attention because turkeys directly respond to this habitat. There's a reason why we are able to, as a community, bring turkeys up to the extent that we did and had those heydays of hunting, and now they're on the decline. It's It doesn't take a rocket scientist to really kind of figure out the pattern here. And, and so, you know, you can't base this off of just deer. I mean, let's face it, deer will freaking live in a parking lot if you let them, yes. right? I literally was driving through Murfreesboro, the, uh, Murfreesboro, Tennessee the other day, and I passed an old abandoned, I guess, like trailer parking staging area or something. It was all pavement, but they had the little grown up weeds and stuff coming through the cracks. There were freaking 12 deer out there grazing in, a, in an abandoned parking lot. And so, like, when people start comparing this stuff to where all oh, my deer population is just fine, I'm like, yeah, they're the cockroaches of the <laughs> of the hunting world, right? Like that they they will survive now if they're not overhunted, right? And uh, it, it's just frustrating to where you know I, I get on this soapbox and I'm so passionate about it because it, I, I try and get it through to people that maybe don't come down here and see it to where like if this happens down here. I'm sorry, like it can just as easily spread up north through the Appalachians to where what's starting here, wait 10 or 15 years, and you can start seeing that happen further north. And, and hopefully, you know, if we can fix this and stop it, you know, it those other people don't have to realize because, I mean, let's face it, man, the Southeast has a rich tradition of especially bobwhite quail hunting. 
huge. But rough grouse, man, I don't think people realize back no. in the 90s and early 2000s, you're able to stack tailgates with with rough grouse. Yep. Looking back on some of those pictures, it the sa- southern region it, it was prolific with rough grouse. And I mean, if you like to read, look at some of the books that were written about it, right? I mean, it was a big time thing here. Yeah, I mean, like you're talking about up north or out west. I mean, look at Kansas right now. Their bird numbers are, I mean, they'll anybody who lives out there will tell you they're gone already, you know, but they're not that bad. But you, when you drive around, there's there's a lot of everything's hayed right now. You, you come across a lot of mowed ditches. I mean, I had my 11 year old with me and he's noticing like, Man, we just drove for a couple miles, and there's not really anywhere a bird can live. I mean, it's easy to see what the problem is. I mean, yeah, that's what they need the habitat. I mean, yeah, you'll have big ups and downs due to weather. I mean, that's how upland birds are, right? If we could figure that out, we'd be doing something. But right. I mean, that's just who knows. But I mean, if you give them the habitat, they're gonna be there. Yeah. Yeah, man, you just drive down the road and and all you see are hay fields and 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 freaking pine plantings. That's that's about it in a lot of areas. Yeah. And, and I mean, yeah. there, there's just nothing there for them, and uh, they just you know, it is what it is. I mean, obviously we we can sit here and and talk about this until we're blue in the face because you know it. We unfortunately live this every season, and and it's hard not to get frustrated. Sure. But, but I don't I don't want to close on this uh, depressing note. I, I want to talk yeah. about let's have a little bit of fun as we kind of start steering towards the end here. Of uh, we haven't talked dogs yet. You know, what kind of dogs do you run and and, and hunt with, and just kind of. Tell break that down. What kind of dogs do you have? So the dogs have been part of my life, like my whole life too. I mean, from the time I could remember, uh, we had dogs. That my my dad had dogs. We had dogs at my grandparents. And uh, the first dog I had was a lab, and that was actually the first dog I ever hunted over was a lab as well. So I think that's where my love. I'll probably always have a little black dog running around. So right now I've got a three-year-old lab. Um, uh, my wife, when I met her, she's a big duck hunter, and my son loves to duck hunt. I do too. The upland bird thing is m- my thing now, but I still get out duck hunting a good bit. So we got a lab, and uh, man, it, sh- we were taking her to the pond one day and uh, to do a little training, and she flushed a woodcock. I mean, she was not even a year old yet. And I'm like, okay, well we'll start doing this. And, uh, I start, I've hunted, uh, I hunt grouse a good bit with her. Um, I enjoy doing that. You know, it's a different kind of hunting. You're not going out, not paying attention. I mean, you got to walk and pay attention to her the entire time. But I spent a lot of time training her and she's a pretty good dog. She minds well. So it's a fun experience for me, but, uh, I've got a little setter now. She just turned eight months. Yeah, it's the first pointing dog I've had in a while. And man, I've just kind of fallen back in love with the the pointing dogs with this one. You know, she's been a lot of fun. Uh just watching her put it all together. Uh I've got right out the window uh a pigeon coop. So we spent the summer uh playing with pigeons and just letting her kind of piece it together on her own. And then uh late October, we started having some woodcocks show up here around the house and She's been on them and man, she, uh, she's, she's a lot of fun to hunt over, you know? 
Oh yeah, man. Uh, yeah. She, she's a pretty little thing for sure. And, and like, you can tell that she, the light bulb's starting to come on. It's flickering. Like you could just yeah. tell, uh, how she was acting and, and hunting. You know, we put her on the ground with, with Rachel, which, uh, it, I, I always love watching young dogs that have never been run with yeah. another pointing dog. Uh, you know, Rachel, Rachel's great for that because you, she's bomb proof with an, you've been there, done that. Like a, a young dog's not going to mess with her, but she's also going to put the boundaries on it. So that like, she's a great great dog for a young one to kind of learn with and uh they they ended up got getting in a nice little rhythm and and working off you know your dog had run quite a bit before we had gotten there so she was already kind of worn out but it kind of resulted in a nice even rachel was a little further out she was a little closer in and and the few times she got a little puppy chasing in on her rachel you know kind of just no we don't we don't do that We're, we're working right now but uh Oh yeah, and I'm not gonna lie. I mean, when you when you uh, said let's put them on the ground together, I'm like, oh lord, here we go. Because <laughs> I mean, that's she runs around the house with the dogs and she pesters them. And I mean, but like you say, when she's hunting, she's all business. I mean, she checks in with me. She'll come and look at me on the way by, and then she's back out there. So I thought we were gonna have a chase on our hands the whole time. But like you say, I mean, with Rachel, it was like she's not even here. I mean, yeah. Yeah, Man, it was good to watch. Ra- Rachel's not one to play too much, even in the house with them. You get you put yeah. her on the ground. And she's just like, uh, uh-uh, kid. Now nah, we're we're here to work. We're not here to play. <laughs> but uh, it it was one of those. Typically, I I enjoy and appreciate hunting one dog at a time. But I also like one of the things I I love when multiple dogs, especially like finished dogs are on the ground and you got the backing and, oh, yeah. the, and and the teamwork and and you can't get there unless you run multiple dogs and then there was a little bit of i didn't have that much time like this was a very in and out hunt on the way to yeah. pick up my mother-in-law for christmas and bring her back home so like we just squeeze this in and i didn't want to go the entire afternoon without seeing your setter work so like i selfishly yeah. i just i like watching setters yeah. work so i wanted to see it but uh on the way out from the, on that it's like we got into some birds and what was really interesting is, is Rachel was on point and the scenting conditions was just so bad. Again, you know, we're talking about that at the start of this, Rachel was pointed the opposite way or so I really thought, you know, I kind of thought about it later. I I looked at the GoPro footage. She was pointed in one direction and me and you went over there and we're standing there for how long do you think we were standing there? I don't know. We, I mean, we had a conversation. You know, I cut the GoPro off. Like, I thought about a lot about that later. I'm like, man, that was stupid of me to do. You know, that was almost a rookie mistake. Like, yeah, it, it, it had to been three, four, five minutes of just standing yeah. there talking. And, and by the end, I was feet from them. Yeah. And, and so, like, we go, we, we don't kick any birds up. Rachel even breaks off her initial point, and she yeah. goes off to my left, and we're like, oh, well, that that was exciting. We thought it was about to happen. Yeah. And yeah. fortunately, I didn't cut off my GoPro yet, and then out of nowhere, that covey gets up on your right, and and, and they're gone. And, and uh, I shoot, I miss. You knocked one down from that one. But what's interesting is when you shot, Rachel came back because, you know, that's where we shot. She was off to my left. On her way back, she slams on point again. And what it was is she was initially pointing a single, a lone single that was just, I don't know, 15 yards away from the covey. And so she went on point on that and that got up and I got to shoot that. So me and you both got one bird each. 
unfortunately, I hate how it happens. It was, they were both hens. Go figure. It's just like, ah, yeah. oh, come <laughs> on, man. But uh, so you can't even be right when it is right. So that you know that yeah. deflated us a little bit, but it was still just we got the covey rise and and we got an opportunity. So it was a successful hunt, and and man, it's it's hard to go home upset when you fly a southern covey of of bobwhite quail and and i want to hear what it's like hunting in the south with a flushing dog when how how is it comparative to a pointing dog when you're when you're busting the cover and that not i mean that was some nasty cover that we were going through i'm still cut up from it uh how how is it that when when we have to bust cover like that at our own pace with pointing dogs how is that compared to having to try and keep up with a flushing dog that all of a sudden gets birdie? Well, no, it's, that's that's part of the exciting part to me, though. You know, I mean, like I said, I spend a lot of time training her, so I can whistle sit her and then catch up to her and then release her again, and she'll stay on the track. But, I mean, like, you know, we were talking, and the birds, they, they're far from gentlemen, like everybody says here. They run a lot. So, I mean, there's a lot of that. Like you say, I mean, you're going through head-tall briars at times, and I'm trying to keep up with her. And, I mean, even when I whistle-sitter, when you get up to her, every muscle in her body, I mean, she's shaking by the time I get up to her wanting to go. You know, like, so it's that's part of the rush to me, though, is just having to keep up with her like that and the excitement when she does get on birds. And, I mean, I'm going to tell you, you know – if if I just wanted to go kill birds, I would probably take the lab. I mean, I you can steer her right to where, okay, I, I think, you know, the birds are probably over here. And it seems like they're so worried about the big black thing coming through the bushes after them. They're not worried about you at all, you know, especially the, the grouse. It seems like they can't think about putting a tree between me and them when the dog's after them, you know, so... I, I enjoy it. I mean, like I say, I've fallen back in love with the pointing dogs with the setter. Just watching her work is a lot of fun. But if I just wanted to go kill birds, the lab, she's a tool, man. You can't go wrong with a lab. There's a reason why labs are labs, right? And yep. and I know that they have kind of a different style when it comes to flushing upland birds compared to other flushers such as a cocker or springer. But it's it's hard to argue with the results of a lab. I mean, there, there's a reason why they're, they're everywhere. And so many people have them and, uh, it's interesting. So like by your experience, you would say you're at least set up better for the shot with the flushing dog on the ground. How do you think, and, it, and it's still early, your, your setter pup is still young. How do you think that that's going to play out? Cause you were telling me in the field, your, your goal is what a lot of ours is when you kind of mix and match dogs like that you do want to have the pointing dog fully broke so that you can use that flushing dog and send it in, you know, kind of walk me through what you're envisioning and how that's going to play out. Well, I've already started at the house, you know, like I, we run the dogs every day and uh, I'll take the lab instead of letting her work through the woods right now. When I take the setter out, I'll bring the lab along too. And I just heal her with me the whole time and let the setter work. And then like you say, it's going to, I'm going to get to set her through this season. And then uh, depending on where she's at, you know, I, I might start getting her broke in the spring, work through the summer on that. And then, you know, hopefully I can heal the lab along and the setter goes on point and 
you know, I mean, you can go about it so many ways. You can sit the lab down and get myself in position across from her and try to get her to flush the bird across in front of me. I don't, you know, like, but it's, there's something to it though with, I get so much better shots when she's the one flushing the birds. I mean, you know how they are. They, mm-hmm. When you're the one walking in flushing those birds, they're, they're getting away from you at that point. Yeah. Instead of just getting away from the dog and, and then you're an afterthought, you come secondary to just getting away from, like you said, the, the big black Sasquatch coming in. At them. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. So man, yeah. I, I enjoyed this. I appreciated you kind of reaching out and then, you know, it just uh, essentially just linking up with me and, and, spend a few hours in the woods, man. I always love catching up with listeners. And if, if the timing kind of works out and, and we can make it happen, I, I'm, I'm curious, you know, we met another fellow Upland hunter before we even got going, Alan, who, who, if he's listening to this, we kind of clued him into the, into the podcast while standing there talking to him. Poor guy was just covered with beggar's lice and, you know, he had been out fighting the good fight earlier, but, uh, you know, I'm, I'm curious if, if you've already linked up with him and, or if y'all have any plans to go, because you know, if he's listening to this, he knows exactly where we were and he's going to know where those birds are. (laughs) That's right. That's right. But no, I hadn't talked to him yet, but, uh, yeah, I'm going to reach out to him. You know, it's always good to have a good network of people, you know, around you that hunt as well. I enjoy talking to people around here that hunt well, and and he's exactly who we were talking about we need because he was a deer hunter who happened to go on a preserve hunt two years ago, and now yeah. he, he he's hooked on it. He's got his own setter, and he's trying to figure it out, and, and he was out there doing it and, and getting after it. You know, those are the guys that uh, we need to bring more into it because, you know, every time he, he can now go to his deer hunting buddies and explain right. explain this stuff. And, again, I, I, I don't need any more people parked at the gate that I want to go to. Uh, but the more people we can reach and, and really kind of spread the message, if you will, uh, the better in my opinion. So take that for what oh, it's yeah. worth. It's up, up to us, you know, people like that. I mean, he might be, you know, we don't know him. He might be the most responsible hunter there is, but it's up to us to teach him, you know, I only kill a couple birds out of that cubby. You know, mm-hmm. when we flushed that cubby late, you and I, we didn't even have to say anything. We didn't think about chasing them, you know? Uh, when you get late in the afternoon, let that covey go. Let them get back together. It's going to be 25 degrees tonight. You know, they need each yeah. other. Yeah. Oh, that was a great example. I, I didn't even think about that because we really did. It was like, I, I don't, I, like you said, we didn't even talk about it. It was just kind of like we both got a bird put it in the vest and we're like, all right, win for the day. And we just walked out. We, we yep. didn't even consider going back after the singles. And, and, uh, it's, it's hard not to some days, but when you kind of condition oh, yeah. yourself, when you start thinking about stuff like that, it's really not that hard of a decision. Uh, when, when you just kind of get over the whole, I have to shoot my limit phase, you know, don't get me wrong. I want to shoot a lot of birds, you know, oh, yeah. dinner's a lot better when you have five quails on the plate as opposed to one or two. But at the end of the day, like you're leaving seed for later, whether that happens yep. to be another hunter or yourself coming back in future years, you you have to leave that seed on the ground. That's right. Man, I appreciate it. I'm sure we're going to link up again sometime as I'm kind of going in and out of the state. I expect to uh, get after some more birds with you in the future. But uh, you're doing great things with the Fire Co-op and everything. Keep it up and and uh, keep trying to spread the message, man. Sounds good, man. 
Everyone seems to have the same questions or concerns when they start trying to decide which kennel to purchase for their vehicle. Perhaps it's time to stop asking all the questions and just design the perfect setup that meets your exact needs. B-Pro Kennel specializes in designing and fabricating custom premier dog boxes handcrafted right here in the USA from high-grade, lightweight aluminum. They'll get you set up with the size dimensions, lighting, storage, battery boxes with solar charging, and anything else you can dream of. Stop stressing over buying the wrong setup, just have to replace it again and again year. Go ahead and check out bprokennels.com and get exactly what you want. If you're considering changing your dog's food soon, then be sure to check out Yukonuba Pro Performance. Their science-backed formulas are designed to take your dog to the next level of performance. They also now have the new puppy formula to help your pup start strong and live active. When looking at all the different food options, remember Yukonuba to help power their ultimate performance. Hey, what's going on, everybody? It's Bob from Lone Duck's Gun Dog Chronicles podcast. I hope you just enjoyed the episode you just listened to. And if you did, I think you'll enjoy hopping on ours. We've got professional retriever trainers and upland bird dog trainers from across the country and world sharing their tips and tricks and great stories to help you and your dog get ready for the season. We'll see you there.